Okay, well, join me. And we are back in Exodus chapter now 15, about halfway through uh, that chapter. And we're going to pick up on this, the grumble test. Now, sermon spoiler alert. Warning, warning. This sermon's probably going to hurt. So buckle up. Because it's about how you need to stop complaining and grumbling. Mm, I already heard a grumble. Because it's a far more serious issue, spiritually speaking, than we give it credit for, we think. And so, but let me start with confession time, okay? So, I spent all week studying this text, the ins and outs, parsing the Hebrew, getting in all the details. And, and even by yesterday morning, I had written pretty much most of the sermon, most of. And so, it had been on my mind, and I'd already kind of worked through it. And yet, yesterday, even after the sermon was already written, I just caught myself repeatedly doing what? Almost as a reflex. Can you guess? Complaining. Yeah. So we were up in D.C. for one of my son's basketball games, or a couple of my sons had a game. And uh, as I drove up, 95, <laughs> you know where this might be going. Uh, as we got to the game, I happened to sit next to one of the other parents at the game. Uh, I, I've talked to this other parent a couple times. We don't know each other very well. And so, of course, when you're sitting there kind of waiting for a game to finish, you know, just got to make conversation. So what am I going to talk about? Well, how was the traffic, I asked, because they also drive up from Richmond, of course. And uh, they responded, not bad. No traffic, really, at all. And my reply to that, oh, good, because 95 is a nightmare, isn't it? It's horrible. And then the sirens going off in my head, Rick, you're already doing it. After the game, we're driving around. We're looking for something to eat. And we stopped at this burger place. And the first words out of my mouth were looking at it, whoa, this place looks sus. And that's me trying to be cool and connect with my boys. But anyway, that means this place looks suspicious, like not so good. We shouldn't go in there. I'm complaining about it. All right. Then before we headed back down to Richmond, we stopped at Costco because I wanted to run in and get one of those frosted coffees. But let me tell you this. It was Costco. It was lunch hour, and it was a Saturday. <laughs> it took a long time to get one frosted coffee. And when I got back to the car, without thinking, can you guess what I started doing? I was complaining. And that's with the small stuff. Let alone when things actually go bad, like we're not dealing with first world problems, like I had to wait a few minutes for a frosted coffee. But when actually things get tough in our life, and we really start to grumble, we really start to complain, we really start to sulk and despair, because life is not what we want. And it seems just so natural. I, I was, at least I confess, natural to me, just so reflexively complaining about this world. And I think it is natural to us, because this world's broken, and we're sinners, and there's sinners all over the place, and we are all complaining about everything. But just because it's natural doesn't mean it's right. And actually, what this text uncovers is that grumbling actually reveals a great spiritual problem, a problem that God wants to expose in us, even this morning from Exodus, and He wants to fix it, and so grow our faith in Him. So the sum up of what this text is about, when God brings you a test or trial or trouble or even just inconvenience in your life, you got two options. You can grow in faith or you can grumble in doubt. Those are your choices. And so, what are you going to do? You're going to grow in faith, trust Him, see what He's doing, 
you know he's good, or are you going to grumble and complain and accuse him of wrongdoing? These are your options. And what we're to learn from the Israelites is instead of bucking God's plan, embrace the test even. He's trying to help you even in the difficulty expose your momentary, if we can put it that way, unbelief to help you trust him more because that's what you need more than anything. And so the final thing of this is embrace the test. Grow in faith. Why? Because you know he is good even through the test. So this will unfold kind of in two halves in this text as we look at the end of chapter 15 and then turn to the first part of chapter 16. But we're going to see first that troubles test our faith. Trouble tests our faith. It exposes it. It shows to God, but more pertinently here, it shows to us what our faith is really made of. See, even after we've been saved and we've been redeemed, it's not like life suddenly just becomes bliss. That's not the Christian life. More than that, we see here, God actually sends you challenges. Trouble. He puts it there on purpose to test your faith. Because in the end, he knows that's the way to strengthen it. But it starts with this test. And the test they run into first is this problem, this, this problem that they have no water or all the water they have is bitter. So to kind of set up the context, we were in Exodus 14, and we saw the great deliverance of God's people through the Red Sea. And he safely brings his people through, and more than this, he destroys all of the enemies of God, these Egyptians that were pursuing, and this was a great day. And so they respond in praise. We saw this last week. What's the right response to redemption? To praise him, to give him the glory. That's through verse 21 of chapter 15. But that's not the end of the story for Israel. They are not to, say, remain at the seashore, singing and rejoicing in their salvation. That's not the end of God's plan for them. They have a journey ahead of them, and it's a hard one. God marches them right into a desert wilderness. And there, it takes but just three days for their enthusiastic praise to get turned into irritated complaining. Now, while we're going to stop short of saying their complaints are justified, I think we can at least be quite sympathetic to their troubles. So what would you be like in this situation, marching in the desert? Look at verse 22 of chapter 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. The way that's put, at least the way it runs in the English, I'm almost like they were on a vacation at the beach, and Moses like, it's time to go, guys. They're like, Really? Anyway, so they head to the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And that's a problem. Twenty years ago, I hiked all over Israel, which is a similarly arid place to where the people of Israel were back then. Uh, It was very hot. It was summertime. But I was well supplied with food and plenty, plenty of water. And can you guess what I still did? Yeah, thank you. Try this one, though. Send me three days in the desert, and I have no water? And more than this, and my wife's got no water? 
My kids got no water. My animals don't have water. We're all literally dying of thirst. You don't live long without water. So that's where they are. And then imagine this happens. Because it doesn't get better at first. Look at verse 23. Then they came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which, by the way, means bitter in the Hebrew language. I'm just trying to imagine the scenario. You know, this is a huge caravan of people, like two million. Maybe you're in the middle of that pack, and everybody's thirsty. Everybody needs something to drink. And you hear reports passed down from the front. There's water up ahead, right? The sun reflects off this huge lake, and everybody's getting excited. People are starting to speed up in their gait. You quicken your step. Your hope rises. And then you start hearing this murmur, 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 murmur from the front. Come back down. Oh, the water's, it's bitter. We can't drink it. You can imagine like the people, the two million people encircling this lake, all just staring at it, thinking this is some kind of cruel trick. We are dying of thirst, and the only water around us, we can't even drink it. That's where you start having thoughts like, whoever's leading us, they have no clue what they're doing. Didn't you know the water was going to be no good? Why did you take us here? Where are you taking us? We're going to die out here. What are you doing? You're trying to kill us? So that's the problem. Now we turn and we see the possible responses to that problem. Because you'll see that this is a test. It's a test of their faith. Trouble has come their way and it's real. They need water. Speaking of. Excuse me. The issue is, will they trust God in this trial? For what follows in verses 24 and 25 then, at least the first part, you see two possible responses to the trouble. And the first one you get is the people's faithless, doubting reply, grumbling. Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now we'll explore what this word grumbling means in a little bit more detail. You'll get to see it kind of firsthand as we turn to chapter 16 here in a moment. But understand, as it's phrased as a question there in verse 24, what shall we drink? This is not some kind of like just honest question. Like, Moses, I'm curious. We doing Diet Pepsi today? What are we having? You know, as you might be like driving with your friend on a road trip and you kind of nudge him and like, hey, where do you want to stop for lunch? You know, all hopeful and excited of having some delicious food. No, th this is more like, dude, we just passed the last Chick-fil-A road sign again. Why did you not pull over? And actually, this kind of grumbling is far, far worse than that. The word explains one Hebrew dictionary, describes hostile complaining, strong words of discontentment, angry rejection, or verbal attacks of a dissatisfied people. That's grumbling. That's one response to the trouble. Here's the other response. Moses shows the way. How should he respond in the midst of trouble and trial and challenge? Respond with dependent faith. That's what Moses shows us here, verse 25. And he, Moses, cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. So as trouble rose, instead of complaining about it and accusing the Lord of wrongdoing, what does Moses do? 
He turns to the Lord in desperate prayer. That's portrayed in this thought, he cried out. I mean, this is faith. He knows there's no hope except in God, so he calls upon God. And gloriously, as one pastor pointed out, when Moses cried out to God, his one little prayer accomplished more than all the murmurings of the Israelites, end quote. And so what are you going to do when in trouble? Are you going to grumble or are you going to grow? Are you going to trust and call upon him or are you going to complain? Because notice here, trust does not mean necessarily quietly just saying nothing. It doesn't mean you have to suffer in silence. Actually, as you read the Psalms, what do we see? We find believers crying out to God. He even invites us to do this in our trouble. This is what faith looks like. It doesn't look like just be quiet and suck it up. It means you turn to God with your problems. Cast your cares on him, he commands us, because he cares for you. And that's what part of this test is. Will you trust me even by giving me your cares? That's what faith does, because it trusts that God is still out for our good. And he shows that here in this case, in particular, as he provides a solution. He shows Moses what to do. Uh, You could also translate it, that he teaches him what must be done. The word for show, him a log, is related to the word for Torah, which is law or instruction. And so Moses does what God tells him or shows him to do, and so the water is healed. Everybody gets something to to drink. They are satisfied. The Lord provides once more. Why? Because he's good looking after his people. So you got the problem, you got the possible responses, and next we have set up a paradigm or a pattern. See, why did God do it like this? He's trying to teach us something. That's what's going on. That's why he takes them down this road. Because realize, they didn't get here by accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't like God said, oh man, I thought this lake was going to be good. What are we going to do now? Oh, I got an idea. He intentionally brought them here. Remember, yes, it's Moses who leads them out. That's where it begins in verse 22. But where does Moses take them? We saw this earlier. He takes them wherever the pillar and cloud of fire goes. You know, you've got this tornado of God's presence. Wherever it goes and when it goes, that's where the people of God are to go. So they went to the bitter lake, very thirsty. It was no accident. More pointedly, God brought them there in that way on purpose, you see. Again, evidently to teach them something, or or more precisely, to test them, to expose their faith, or maybe lack thereof. And he does the same thing for us, such that we pick it up in the middle of verse 25. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Okay. Well, what is this rule and this test? What is this all about? Verse 26, saying, 
If you will diligently, the Lord says, listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Now, let me clarify what this does not mean, especially as we take in all of Scripture. Understand, first of all, this is not a test of obey enough and then I'll save you. Then I'll heal you. How do we know that? Well, think about it. This is after the Red Sea. What happened at the Red Sea? He delivered them. He saved them. He already claims them as his people. So this isn't about you get to be my people. He wasn't having them on the other side of the Red Sea with the Egyptians chasing. Well, if you really obey me, I'll let you get through the Red Sea. No. He already saved them. And now that they are his people, he's saying, trust me, obey me. This is not about salvation. This is about what we call sanctification, growing in faith and growing in obedience. That's the first clarification. Second, this is not a statement that illness only comes when you disobey. I have a head cold, if you can't tell, and it's maybe not in particular because of any sin, though I need to work on complaining. Let's all confess that together. But conversely, nor is it if you have enough faith or obey enough, you'll always be healed. Again, no, that's not what this is talking about. It's not what the scriptures talk about. Well, what is the issue then? Here it is, and this is the point of this text. When trouble comes, when things get tough, where are you going to look? Even when you discover the problem or the trouble is right inside of you, again, where are you going to look? In other words, what is he saying when he says, I'm your healer? He's saying, I can protect you. I can heal you. I can keep your life if you look to me, if you trust me. Okay. Well, what does that kind of look to the Lord in faith mean? What does faith look like? Well, he tells us four facets of it, really reiterating kind of the same thing in verse 26. Again, look at it. To look to God in faith means what? Four things. To listen diligently to his voice, his word. You listen to his word, which means what? To do what is right in God's eyes. That's number two. Number three, to give ear to his commands, to pay attention to them is the idea. And number four, to keep or obey them, all his statutes. And when it reads there, all his statutes, it calls to mind to me the, the Great Commission, right? So the point is, this is not just an old covenant, Old Testament kind of thing, like God wants you to obey him. No, remember the, the Great Commission? He calls us, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, and that's going to look like two things, baptizing them and then in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all Jesus says that I've commanded you. Obedience is not a new thing, nor is it an old thing. It's just always been the thing with God. And that's the sum of what we're getting at here. What does faith look like? It looks like obedience. And we saw this recently when we considered James chapter 2 at our Sunday evening fellowship this past month. Kyle Fuller walked us through a bit of that. And what did we see? Faith, genuine faith, shows out itself in an adherence to God's Word. Not is, to clarify, not just to listen to it, but to do it, right? This isn't, oh, I have the most sermon podcast downloaded onto my iPhone than anyone else on the planet. 
In one sense, God doesn't give a rip. You would do far better hearing one sermon, reading the word, and doing it. That's faith. To trust and obey. There is no other way, right? So will you trust and obey him when trouble hits? Will you trust and obey me, God's saying, when the trial comes, when the difficulties rise? Because that's what faith looks like, especially when it gets tough. You know, when you can't figure out, well, God, I don't know how this is going to work out for good. When you can't see, like, the good thing that's going to come after this. That's where you trust him, right? That's where you obey anyway. That's what faith looks like. And that's the test that's before them. And summarized well, one pastor put it like this. God's desire was to bless and not to curse. He did not test his people so they would fail, but in the hope that they would learn to obey. That's what he's about here. Will you look to God? Will you look to his word? That's the test of faith. That's when faith really shows. That's the paradigm. That's the pattern. And it's followed here by a provision. We see a bountiful provision. Because God knows how to take care of his people. We see it here in verse 27. It says, They came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. Now, this is incredible. The, the 12 springs would represent or point to, there's a spring for every tribe, every people group in Israel. Every tribe's got a, got a spring. And furthermore, there's 70 palm trees, which seems to represent, again, perfect provision. Because we know there were 70 elders, 70 leaders of the nation of Israel. And it's like they each get a palm tree. God perfectly provides for them. Now, the question comes, why didn't, you, why didn't you take us there in the first place, right? Why did we have to go to Mara first and go through this whole bitterness show? Why couldn't you just take us straight to the oasis? Wouldn't that be a lot easier? Of course it would be. But it would not have so tested and exposed their faith. See, when God brings a difficulty a new challenge, an inconvenience even. What's your knee-jerk reaction to that? When you're thirsty and then you're led to some water and then you find that the thing you're hoping for to satisfy you doesn't, how do you respond then? I think it's natural, again, for us to respond with bitter complaining. Why? Because we want things to be easy. It's like we want heaven now. We don't want trouble, testing, difficulty. At least I don't. And yet, the Lord brings all of those things into our lives all the same. And he does it, and here's the trick. Here's where faith comes. He does it for your good. Pastor Phil Riken made this point, and he did so while quoting John Calvin, so you know it has to be good. He said this. What we suffer may be bitter in itself, but however bitter it is, it does not need to make us bitter. The problem at Mara was not the water, bitter though it was, but the bitterness in the hearts of God's people. 
John Calvin pointed out that God might have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter to make prominent the bitterness which lurked in their hearts. See, sometimes the greatest good that God can do is to remind you of your weakness, to expose in your heart that you really need him. Because he knows what you need more than anything is not convenience, is not ease, which those can oftentimes just be further reasons to be spiritually apathetic or self-reliant. What do you need more than anything? And what he's after, you need more of him. You need greater faith. And you're hardly going to make that kind of progress if your life, as you expect it, is all just puppies and rainbows for the rest of the days until you get to heaven. It's like we want to go from the shores of the Red Sea and just go straight into the promised land. But the Lord has a good but long and hard journey for us. It's a wilderness out there. Yet it's intentional. Why? Because he's teaching you to trust him. And you need that far more than you need convenience or ease. And it's that kind of faith mentality, I think, that can only make sense of that exhortation from James. We considered it on an aside briefly, but I rehearse it here because it just makes no sense without faith. Here's what the, in the New Testament we hear in James chapter 1. Here's the command. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Like embrace the trial because it's producing good in you. It's strengthening your faith so it endures, so it lasts. And he says, let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that means conversely, if you want to be complete, you want to be lacking in nothing spiritually speaking, you want to be spiritually strong, then it means you got to be tested. you got to be challenged you got to have your faith scrutinized and exposed by the Lord so that you would see you can't even rest on your faith being strong enough. You can only rest, and he invites you to rest in him. And really, that's faith, isn't it? Count it all joy. Trust him for the good in the end. Embrace the test. Grow in faith. Trouble tests our faith. And when it does, if grumbling comes out, that exposes our faithlessness. And that's what we find as we turn now to chapter 16. When trouble comes and grumbling comes out of our life, what does that say about our faith? Well, it exposes our faithlessness, at least in the moment. Our moments of unbelief are practical atheism. So then as we turn to chapter 16 here in the first part, we're going to see four truths about grumbling. And the first is this, grumbling distorts the past, verses 1 to 3. This is where unbelief meets like revisionist history. You start grumbling because you've forgotten the past. So as the Lord has provided water for them, uh, their basic needs arise again, but now they need food. Verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So they've been out of Egypt a month now, and you remember when they left, they met all these unleavened cakes. 
Well, those unleavened cakes are gone. And now they're getting hungry. Or if they're like me, and apparently they very much are, uh, they're getting hangry, right? And so they turn on Moses and Aaron, their leaders, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, this is the same word for grumble we already saw earlier in chapter 15, verse 24. But what follows in verse 3, you get kind of like the, the exposure, what, what this looks like played out. We heard about grumbling, now we see it. Look at verse 3. And the people of Israel said, so this is what their grumbling sounded like, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What has so fueled their animosity against Moses and Aaron but a total distortion of the past? Their rumbling bellies and stomach pains have just totally warped and changed the way they see life. Such that in verse 3, they say, man, I wish you would have killed us in Egypt. You know, as slaves, beaten, murdered, owned, stripped, taken full advantage of, carrying burdens. But we had the, we had the meat pots. Serious? As if they were eating like filet mignon every night in Egypt? Hardly. It's like they chirp in, yeah, Egypt was great, remember? The weather was warm. Some of those Egyptians, when they weren't trying to murder us or whip us to death, they were almost pleasant. And not only have they forgotten how great their redemption was or how brutal their slavery, but now they just foist the worst of intentions on their leaders. You've brought us all out here to kill us with hunger. You guys, Moses and Aaron, you're murderers. And that's just crazy. That makes no sense on what has taken place, right, so far. If Moses and Aaron wanted evil for all of these people, why would they do what they're doing? Why would they pray to God for them? Why would they plead for them? If they wanted their own people to suffer, wouldn't they have just left them enslaved? I think so. So their accusation makes no sense whatsoever. It's not rational. But that's not the point. Sin warps the way you see the world and see the past. All that God has done for them, all that good, it's just flittered from their mind. They can't see it. It's a blind spot now. It's, <coughs> excuse me. It's the worst case of, yeah, but what have you done for me lately, right? So first grumbling distorts the past. But then we see ultimately, what is it doing? It exposes a lack of faith. Verses 4 to 5. A lack of faith in God's mercy and goodness. Because watch this. Oh, well, first imagine. If folks were grumbling against you, you know, saying, hey, Rick, you're doing a horrible job leading these two million people, so much so we understand you're actually trying to murder us all, how would you respond to that if you were God? You'll be glad Rick is not God. Fine. Yeah, I'll let you die in the wilderness then. You ingrates, this is how I would reply. Find your own food. Get your own water. Make your own way through the wilderness. Let me know how that goes. And honestly, while it might have been just for God to have done that, thankfully, he is far, far more merciful 
after just accusing God of trying to kill them, here's how God responds, verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go, go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. You need food? Again, you ungrateful, slanderous people, you want food? God says, I'll give you food. Again, what mercy. He loves his people, sinners and grumblers though we are. But even in this overflowing of grace, see, God wants to help these people with their complaining and their unbelief. Because notice at the end of verse 4, he's going to rain bread from heaven, but why? What's this about? It's not merely to meet their needs, but it says, so that he might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. He wants to test, expose their faith, expose even their lack thereof faith. so he can help them and strengthen it in the end. We'll consider that more, Lord willing, a couple of weeks as we continue in Exodus 16. But you just got to see first that your grumbling, your complaining is no small thing. It's big, and it manifests a big faith problem, such that grumbling does this. It accuses God of wrong. It accuses God of wrongdoing. Verses 6 to 8. So here's the thing. This is the most piercing truth of this text. Your grumbling and your complaining isn't ultimately against the traffic. It isn't ultimately against the weather or our president or your pastor <laughs> or your spouse or your kids. Your grumbling goes back and barks all the way up the flagpole. To God. All of your grumbling about whatever it is is ultimately grumbling against the almighty sovereign God. And that should make us tremble. Look at verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we, Moses and Aaron say, that you grumble against us? Verse 8, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we, Moses and Aaron say? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Whoa, for reals? For reals. My grumbling is really a complaint against God? Yeah, he said it twice, so you heard him. Did you see that there? Look at the end of verse 7. And then again at verse 8. The Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. Your grumbling's not against us, it's against the Lord. But of course, I don't think we just often or naturally see it that way. I'm not complaining against God. I'm just complaining about the traffic. I mean, I'm singing a praise song in my car right now. 
I'm just grumbling because the quarterback fumbled the ball and got returned for a touchdown. I'm complaining about the bad waiter or poor service or a neglectful spouse. I'm not complaining against God. And I'm quite sure we don't see it naturally that way. That is, that our grumbling's against God, because in a Christian context, we're so quick to spread the grumbling thing. And it seems like our human default is just to complain to someone, hoping they're going to join us in complaining. Man, this weather's horrible, huh? Yeah, I hate it. Stinks. Man, the service is terrible today. I had to wait five whole minutes for my frosted coffee. Oh, I know! It took me six yesterday. Horrible. That teacher's the worst. He's always assigning extra work on the weekend. Oh, I know. He's so unreasonable. I don't like him. I mean, what's, how's the saying go? Misery loves company. Why? Because we're sinners in a broken world. And so we complain about it and ultimately against our God all the time. So does any of that chatter kind of sound familiar to your life? You might have been standing next to me yesterday, the basketball game. You would have heard things like this. Well, you need to know what that kind of thing is if it's taking place in your mind and in your heart. You know what it is? It is sin. It's sin that the Son of God had to come down from heaven to die for. And without him doing that, all of that complaining are guilty sentences against every one of us in this room. And the worst part about it is, too, when we are voicing those kind of beefs, those complaints, like so often, you're just pulling others into your sin with you. Now, but Rick, is my grumbling really against God? Are you sure? Well, consider this verse, okay? You probably have it memorized because it's such a comfort. And if you haven't memorized it, you should because it is so comforting. But... It can be a bit of a two-edged sword when put alongside and in view of this truth that we have in Exodus. The verse I'm talking about is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Everything in your life Everything in your life, from the unreasonable professor to the neglectful waiter to the weather forecast to your body's aches and pains are part of the all things that God has sovereignly declared for your life. He has ordained them all, and not just in some generic way. He's done it particularly with you in mind. But get this. This is the point of Romans 8.28, and this is where faith comes in. He does it for your good. It, it may not be good on its face, true, but he has good designs in them for you. That's why he brings them into your life. But when you lose sight of God and you just criticize how he orders your life, ultimately what are you doing? You're attacking his character. You're attacking his goodness. You're attacking his wisdom. God, if you were good, you should know that I should never run into traffic because I always run late. God, if you were wise, you, you know I can't get sick this weekend. 
God, if you were good to me, you know that I dot, dot, dot. In short, all of your grumblings just tell the world, God doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to run the world well, and I could do it a whole lot better, at least in my little sphere. So, when was the last time you uttered a complaint? It's not quite noon yet. How are you doing so far? Maybe it happened when your alarm went off. Why do I have to get up so early? Maybe it was when the sermon got a little too long or too personal. Well, what does that mean? It's just one example of when you have failed the faith test. Now, with that, it just shows your faith is not where it should be, nor where it needs to be. Now, I don't mean to say that then your faith is entirely absent. That's not at all the point. I think we all struggle with this, and we're thankful that he comes to save even grumbling sinners. But Phil Riken put it like this, and he's just spot on. He said, a complaining spirit always indicates a problem in our relationship with God. Which brings us finally then, what grumbling ultimately shows, it stems from a deficient view of God. Verses 9 to 12. Now, what's the solution to this grumbling spirit and attitude? And some might say, and there's truth in it, well, you replace the grumbling with thankfulness. Find something to be thankful for instead. And that's good advice, but it only goes so far because our problem goes a lot deeper than that. It ultimately stems from a deficient view of God. So look at this, verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And if I'm Israel at that point, I'm going, uh oh. That's like the ultimate when mom says, Wait till your dad comes home moment, right? Knowing their guilt, knowing they're dead to rights. And God's going to come near? That seems like a terrifying thing. And in one sense it should be. But if you knew who the Lord was, what comes next might not so surprise you. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of my people Israel. So say to them, at twilight I'm going to send down fire and sulfur from heaven. Oh, that's not what my Bible says. I've heard your grumbling, so what am I going to do? You're going to eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. And then what's going to happen? Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. I heard your grumbling, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to meet your needs anyway. Why? Because I am the gracious Lord. That's why. You'll come to know what I'm really like. Even in the face of all your ungrateful grumbling, your faithless slander, I'm going to show you grace anyways. I'm going to provide abundantly anyways. Why? Because that's who I am. Again, I alluded to it already, but we'll see it, Lord willing, in a few months in Exodus chapter 34 when we get there. But there, the Lord reveals what he is like. He tells you, I am the Lord. And what does he say to Israel? I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, the idea is thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. I am the Lord your God. And so he's saying to Israel, let me reintroduce myself. You don't really know me yet if you really think I took you out here to kill you. 
and I would not take care of you. And so you see in that way, all of our complaining stems from a deficient view of God. When our attention has been captured by our pain, our disappointment, our trouble, and as real as those things may be, but it's easy then to lose sight of and have our faith flag and waver and lose sight of our God. But this is a call then, remember who your God is, right? He is the Lord. And more than that, we know now, this side of the cross, he is the risen Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for you, who spilled his blood for you, who now lives in heaven for you, keeping you by faith in the power of God for heaven. In other words, more simply, don't forget, even in the great trouble, that's not the sum of your life. What it is, it's your God, and he's alive. And he loves you, he pursued you, and he's good. So when the next trouble arises, what are you going to do? You're going to grow? And be strengthened in your faith? Or are you going to choose to grumble? Well, the word from Exodus is, remember your God. Embrace the test. Even as James says, count it all joy, because he's going to help you grow in faith so you get more of your God. And see how gracious he really is. Well, let's pray for that.